And welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the first time in far too long by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Nice to talk to you again, Courtney. And hello, Ben. I don't detect a Russian accent in your voice, which disappoints me immensely. Yeah, I, I think I resisted pretty strong. <laughs> I think. Did they key. speak a lot of Russian? So, Ben, the reason why, and we would just first like to just thank everybody for all of your kind of tweets and emails wondering when and why there weren't any podcasts uh, over the course of last month. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's not because we wanted that to be the case, uh, but Ben had a gig in Sochi and yeah. um, and I was also busy doing family stuff. So it just never really worked out. But and, and, and um, it wouldn't have been possible in Sochi, even even without the 12 hour time difference between us when you were in California and I was in Russia and which is not a good time difference. The internet there is just not up to par for this kind of thing. People okay. started quickly calling it the internet, which they thought was so clever. <laughs> I like it. It's good, right? It yeah, always like made it. me laugh. It was it was simple. It was funny. <laughs> yeah, so that didn't work out. But, you know, we kind of, I think, thought that, like, we'd be able to kind of catch up because not that much stuff would really happen in February. I don't know how everybody else feels about it. But for me, I kind of saw February as, as this is, like, speaking back in, like, October, November, December, like when the season was kind of winding down that uh-huh. I saw February as my like relaxation month that I would be able to kind of take some time off. But then so much crap happened and we couldn't talk about it. And I have so many feelings. Feel, and so I feel like February is kind of secretly always a bigger month than it should be in tennis. Uh, you get, you know, around the Davis Cup, around the Fed Cup, Dubai, Doha for the women, uh, Rotterdam, the whole South American swing. So even if it's not like a lot of high profile things, it's a whole lot of medium profile stuff. Yeah. And I think that this year, what really made it different was that typically I'm used to kind of like February February being, and obviously we're recording this on March 1st. So February has gone. It's over. But yeah, it's over. I I will say it would be February if this was a leap year. That's a fact. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it's not. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of used to February being kind of like this month where you start to kind of see some of like the lesser named players, more the journeymen, more the top tenors who are not like the big name draws, like make runs and start to build up momentum. And hopefully that makes, you know, Indian Wells and Miami really interesting. But this year we actually had some like fairly big storylines kind of come out of the Middle East, which was good. And and uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to kind of getting your thoughts on it, Ben, because Ben and I have not spoken. We haven't. In a month. No, you don't have Russian accent either, Courtney. I thought maybe I you had gotten one from the NBC coverage or something. No, I got a little bit more of a flamboyant swirl just because of uh, all of my Tara and Johnny watching. Um, I am so sad I didn't get to watch Tara. Oh my gosh, you would have loved it. It was so good. I would have even watched Ice Dancing, which for the record... Not a sport whatsoever. <laughs> Although I did see, um, what are their names? Charlie and Merrill. Mm-hmm. They were at the USA Canada men men's hockey semi, and they and she and she was like fist pumping like USA chants like crazy. That's it, pretty. Good. It was a great visual to see her doing that. I mean, let's be real. More than half of the quote, well, more than half of the events I will call them at the Winter Olympics are not sports. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like, well, some of them it depends. Like slope style. Slope style, I I like. It's still not a sport. It's too new to be a sport. I feel like a sport has to have some sort of been played for generations feel to it. 
You know. I also kind of feel like sports shouldn't be judged. That's also fair. That's my big thing. I'm down. That's not to say that the events aren't enjoyable. I mean, I enjoy them, but I, you know, no. Yeah. No, I watched yesterday. I got back and watched on Netflix um, Price of Gold about Tanya and Nancy. You Mm -hmm. you saw that, I imagine? I have not seen it because I'm trying to wait. Because I want to see the NBC one first and then see the ESPN one because they're very different. So, yeah. But anyway, so the NBC, so Price of Gold basically talks about how Tanya was like really obviously a very good figure skater, but she just didn't fit like the ice princess mold you need to be to win over the judges. And can you imagine if that was the way in tennis? Like, oh, <laughs> you know, Justine Annan is, a real, is the best player right now, but she just doesn't have that princess mentality. She needs to win slams. Like, what right. does that even mean? That it's, it's so ludicrous and absurd. And my younger sister did both rhythmic gymnastics and figure skating when she was younger. Yeah. Did like junior Olympic stuff, like all of that, like pretty, got pretty high level and stuff. And that was just the most asinine thing of all of it. Like just that, you know, she had to like, you know, she'd lose points if her bobby pin was like placed wrong or if a hair went out of place. I'm like, oh, heaven forbid that you should tumble around or skate like in an ice rink and fly and flip and twirl and that like a hair would come out of place and you lose points. Like, what is this? It's, it's not a sport is what it is. I can tell you She'll that. say that they're not sports and she played them. Yeah. So there you go. Or she says, I didn't play them. I did them. <laughs> there you go. So we're going to not play this episode, but do this episode and do more of a retrospective than we usually do. We'll talk Australia, Dubai, a bunch of players who have and have not done stuff in the interim since we last spoke to you, which is back when Anna Ivanovich beat Serena. Remember that? That was weird. I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. So <laughs> let's pretend that never happened and just move on with the show. Yeah, so Courtney, what did you make of the end of the Australian Open and just how it all wrapped up? Let's start with the big story out of there, obviously, which is our new first-time Grand Slam champion and world number three, Stan Wawrinka. I don't think a lot of people saw that coming. No, a lot of people did not see that one coming. And and Ben, I think you were on a plane, maybe? I was in the uh, I was in the Frankfurt airport during the final. Okay, you were in the Frankfurt airport. So the kind of the vibe within the press room you know, before the men's final was really one of like setting the line for how many games Stan would get. Yeah. You know, I mean, people were talking about, is he even going to win a set? You know, obviously because of his track record of having never won a set off Rafa going into that match. Obviously the the kind of intensity of watching that match really started change towards the end of the first set. And then there came that moment where you kind of realized like Rafa's not okay, like no. physically. Um, And then that's when kind of all panic unleashed and you saw people like running from their debt you know off the court to their desks and start writing and things like that and and stuff i mean it was nuts and and i think that there's never there's not going to be an asterisk over over what vavrinka did at least to me simply because the way that he played especially in that first set and the way that he got to the final beating djokovic was phenomenal I mean, he he stood up and he grabbed his moment. And then when, you know, you thought maybe, you know, Rafa kind of put up a bit of a push in that third set and you thought maybe, maybe Vavrinka was going to go off the boil, he kind of found his bearings. And and so he won it, uh, showed a lot of kind of mental fortitude and in a lot of ways intestinal fortitude to kind of get that done. So I think, I mean, that's a great result. I think that this this year on the ATP feels different now that it isn't, you know, Novak kind of going in as like the guy to beat. And it turns out that the guy that we kind of feel like not is the guy to beat, because obviously I think that we still feel like Rafa and Novak are are those guys. 
but you to have a new name and, and to kind of wonder whether or not Stan can keep it up. Um, number three is incredible. I, I really didn't know that he was going to rise to number three if he won that. I don't think that anybody even thought to think that that was going to be a relevant statistic right. to even have in our minds, you know? So, so it's interesting, but, you know, I think that it's not weird, but he hasn't played since the Aussie other than, than Davis Cup. So Indian Wells will be quite an interesting tournament for him. It will be. And it'll be interesting to see how he responds to being relevant on like a real, actually relevant, most recent slam champ, top three player way. It's a totally new scenario for him. A totally new set of expectations, set of... I mean, I still don't I don't think people are going to be banging down his door for interviews in Indian Wells or Miami. I don't think he's quite like that much of a breakout star like like a Sharapova winning Wimbledon in 04 or something like that. Right. Obviously. But it's going to be interesting to see how he reacts to that pressure because a lot of, on the women's side at least, sample set, um, first-time slam winners don't usually back it up with consistent good play afterwards. I mean, look well, at what even, like Lina or Kvitova or Stoser did. You don't even have to compare it to the WTA. You can just look at Del Potro. Yeah, sure. You know, and, it, and he's a guy who... When he won, yeah, maybe it was a little bit earlier than I think maybe we thought he would win a slam. Yeah. But the talent was there, and I think that everybody kind of pegged him. Not like unlike a Kavitova, right? Like you saw the talent, you're like, oh my gosh, that's grand slam winning talent if they can pull it together. And so I think that the the expectations, at least I, I, I don't know about what everybody else thinks, but at least for me personally, if Vavrinka goes through the rest of this year and doesn't win a, doesn't win a title, like I wouldn't call him a failure i wouldn't be like what's up with you like what's wrong with you like at all whereas if it was like a you know back when del potro won his slam and kind of like you know had his injuries and, and has struggled to come back there has always been this kind of sense of like god get it together man like you know like you're so good like so i don't know maybe that is just my personal read on their games and and not to say that i think that Vavrinka was lucky because he wasn't lucky at all at the aussie he had a he had a tough draw and he made it through and first man to beat both you know, Novak and Rafa to win a slam. So, you know, I think that there are still maybe for me questions about motivation okay. with him um, because this is just a tremendous career result. And he's a guy who didn't think that this was ever going to happen. And I think that he's being very honest when he says that. <laughs> I don't think that it's just like a false humility. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And this, I obviously don't expect him to pull a Bartoli and retire within the next month. <laughs> but at the same time, this has to have, you know, exceeded or at the very least met any career goals he ever had. So right. everything from here on is just gravy. And it can be hard to get motivated for gravy, even if he has had a great work ethic lately. Right. You've seen that with Murray a little bit since he won Wimbledon, which was really the last box he had left to check in his career that mattered. He hasn't seemed to be quite as sharp. Obviously, injury stuff has been a huge part of that. But uh, you become a different player once you've won a slam, once you've accomplished your lifelong dream so i agree not too much expectations for staying going forward if he makes semis or final of india wells will i be surprised of course not but if he also yeah. loses you know third fourth round again not not a surprise yeah it's different you know i i just keep kind of thinking back and, and comparing the two kind of victory press conferences um you know comparing him to lee na who won her second slam at the aussie finally and to be fair i wasn't in lee na's press conference in paris when she won the french so i don't know kind of entirely what her demeanor was like after she won her first major but the sense that i kind of really got from her after winning the australian was that she really didn't think that that was it yeah like that that wasn't the goal. Like it was a, a stepping stone to whatever in her mind are the greater goals. And and I think that for her, they are more abstract, that they are, you know, to play better, to see how much her talent can get her 
you know, at this point and to continue to work with Carlos. And so there was still kind of a bit of a hunger there, I think, with her. Whereas with with Vavrinka, there was definitely, I mean, he just had this whole aura of a dude who was just like shocked and didn't know what to do with himself and almost embarrassed yeah. that this had happened. And, you know, that's those are two different mentalities and, and how that, you know, how he's been, if he's been able to kind of um, work through his kind of shock over the last month and, and get himself right in the head to kind of get back on into the swing of things. Because it's not like there's much time to rest. I mean, once March kicks off, we know it's nonstop huge events for the next four eight months, months. Or so, yeah yeah four to eight months so it's you know we'll see we'll see I, I think that's interesting too we can talk i think it reflects also a little bit difference between atp and wta i mean on atp there was this sense that if you're not named andy novak rafa or roger you're not supposed to win slams and so that's kind of i think fits in with the sort of embarrassment maybe you sense like this is not the script beating rafa in a grand slam final if you're vavrinka isn't supposed to be what you do you know, he was right. supposed to lose. And I don't think Lena um, had that mindset at all in Australia because she, I mean, really, Lena had a pretty easy draw yep. in Australia by the numbers, at least. She played players who were playing well. but Well, the draw that as as it worked out. Yeah, no, exactly. Like on paper, as we saw it, in the, I think initially, just like I don't think very many people picked her as a dark horse because it just it looked like it was a pretty tough draw. Yeah, but it, as... it still had Serena in it at that point. Exactly. Shift to the women in Australia a little bit. Uh, what are your biggest takeaways from that for what this tournament means for Lena and then also for uh, the other three semifinalists who I think are all sort of worth discussing and what they did there in the second week? Yeah, I mean, for Lena, I think that so much of it was just, you know, finally, you know, just that, that she had been on the cusp so many times and, and to really re- kind of see her, especially in that final, not crumble. I think was was the really impressive takeaway from her to me because I was live blogging that final and that first set when she could not hit a forehand in and you're just waiting. I mean, for for those people who have watched Lina over the course of the last three years, you know, you know when it's coming. And, you know, she started decelerating. Everything started to kind of just fall apart. Yeah. And yet she remained, well, at least she tried to remain so calm and, um, just you know error after error she didn't freak out she didn't scream at her box she didn't uh, look pissed she just she looked tense i mean it was funny there was a funny moment in the press conference after she won and i asked her you know how did you kind of what were you thinking when you were kind of having so many errors because we could tell that you were you were very tense and she kind of looked at me and was just like really i was trying to i thought i was doing a pretty good job of hiding it and I kind of laughed and and I thought about it later that she's right. I mean, she was hiding it in terms of like not blowing up. But at the same time, like if you've watched her enough, you know that that's like really weird. Yeah. <laughs> so you know that like, you know, sometimes poker like, face Lena is not normal Lena. Exactly. And which is a tell in and of itself. Right. So, yeah. So it was that was very, very impressive that she was able to take that first set because I really genuinely thought that she was going to lose that set. Great result for her, you know, validates everything that she's been doing with Carlos. It's it's good. I mean, it was a it was a good win. And and again, like, you know, I spoke with her. I mean, not spoke with her, but um, was in her press conference and then also had um, like a roundtable interview with her in a small room afterwards. And and her general like body language and her disposition was just one of relief it wasn't one of celebration Mm -hmm. it wasn't one of of shock or anything it was just finally and so i think that that kind of gave me a little bit 
of a better feeling about what she's going to do after the Aussie than maybe, you know, after the French. So what is next for Lena? What what is Lena? What what else can she do? She can she win another slam, do you think? I think she can win another slam. I mean, I think that we've already seen that in the Aussie when everything fell apart. Yeah. You know, in the draw. So I think she's definitely one of those players that you look at in a draw and say, okay, well, if a few things, you know, fall into place, um, she she's she's one of those people who actually has the capacity to take advantage of a broken draw. So I think that's that's a big thing. But I think that that for her, it's it's winning titles. I mean, for as as successful as she's been and as high ranked as she is, two time Slam winner, number two in the world, she doesn't win titles. No. Going, yeah. out, going out and winning Indian Wells would be pretty meaningful for her. Huge. Yeah. I think that that is when you'd start to kind of pay attention and make pay attention to her as a player who not just who isn't one that you only pay attention to at slams, you know, just because of her reputation, but is a player who is bringing it consistently every day. And I think that that's what she wants. You know, I think that, you know, you have some players who are like, I just want to win majors. And that's the whole point. And so I don't really care if I lose in the smaller tournaments, but I don't know if it's like just like reading her autobiography or like whatever, or just kind of feeling like I have a little bit more feeling like whether it's true or not having a little bit more insight into her, how her mind works. I think that she wants to be that player who is consistent, who is winning on a consistent basis that yes, the slams are good, but she wants to win those titles as well. So, and if she, you know, has that goal of being number one, then she has to. Uh, very briefly. And in a way that doesn't give too many spoilers. Cause I know people are, planning on reading this book a lot of them myself included mm-hmm. lena's by autobiography in like 30 seconds how would you sell to people because you obviously enjoyed it a lot from what i could tell i did i live tweeted it i wrote it up for si and i wrote up a thing for the wta as well so not many I'm not like... many books have been live tweeted before this was, this was breaking somewhat new ground it was amazing because I was reading it and I had no one to talk to about it. And so I just had to tweet it. Yeah, no, in 30 seconds, it's just about her battle with herself her entire life and and what and and kind of, you know, trying to trace back why she kind of hates herself so much, to put it crudely. Uh-huh. Um, not hates herself, but that that kind of anger. And she admits she's an angry person. She has a temper. And where that anger comes from. And that anger comes from, you know, her battling and I, I don't know maybe I feel like I can relate to this in a lot of ways kind of battling this idea of like I think I'm good at what I do but I don't know if I'm good at what I do yeah and so though when when you have those kind of warring sides it can be you can get really down on yourself very very quickly the minute that something goes wrong because you're inclined to think that you don't have what it takes yeah. and maybe everyone's right and so the whole book is really about that. It's kind of a weird self-help book in a lot of ways, although she says it, you know, from her perspective. And then all of the stuff with her and her husband is just adorable. Oh, like, it's very kind of cute. Just not... Because I think that, like, we know that, like, she adores her husband because she says it. But, like, the way that she writes about it, and obviously this is translated, but the way that she kind of relays certain anecdotes about what he's done for her throughout her career, it makes what she says in her victory speech about how, like, thank you for giving up everything and you fix the drinks and you fix my rackets and everybody thinks that that's a joke but the depth of what that meant you really kind of get a sense of if you read the book so get it it's on kindle yeah very cool this book came out in english i wish more of the tennis books that were in foreign languages came out in english selfishly obviously Mm -hmm. um like i've heard that like flavia panetta's autobiography was crazy want i know so if anybody wants to talk to her Italian publishing house or any other tennis books, I know like Mahout has a book about the Isner match. 
mm-hmm. that I would like to read. Yeah, I'm all for tennis breaking borders through books. So yeah, keep it up, Lee Nods of the world. Get yourself in English. Yeah. Exactly. Because it's huge. I mean, the biggest thing that I was trying to push and kind of use as kind of my the the great thing about the book is that, I mean, you know this, Ben, like you've interviewed Lena a bunch of times. So have I. Uh-huh. She's great. Her English is good. But there's only so much you can so much complexity you can get to with her. Right. Um, because she can't express it. It's not that she doesn't understand what you're asking sometimes. She just can't express it in the nuance that it yeah, needs she to doesn't, be. She just simply doesn't have a big vocab in English. Yeah. You know, like, how are you supposed to discuss, like, yeah, like, warring sides of a personality and, and you know, things like that. So, you know, this was really, it didn't, the book didn't tell me anything I didn't already either know or have kind of a sense of, but it, it colors in all those lines. And so that's where there's value to it. Very quickly. I know I'm, I'm not getting paid by your publishing house, FYI. <laughs> Really? Really? I know. You would think. There were moments where I thought people thought that I was like in the bag for it. But I'm like, no, it's just a really good book. It's like I'm sh- I'm I'm pimping it the way that I would pimp like the Americans. It's just good and people should watch it and read it. I should really watch the Americans now that I've been yes, Russia. You yes, you I should. Really should. Yes, you should. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Briefly on the other three semifinalists, uh, start with Dominika Sibokova who was, is now a Grand Slam finalist. It still seems like a weird concept, even though mm-hmm. we, this had happened. I mean, what's your what's your take on it? I think it's, she was definitely, I think, the most unlikely Grand Slam finalist since definitely less likely than either Bartoli or Lissicky were at Wimbledon, I think. Safina at the French Open. Yeah, first time. Yeah, that yeah. was weird. Although Dinara had won Berlin before that. That's true. But then, like, what Dinara did in that draw in 08 at the French was like, really? It was incredible. Yeah, yeah I mean, shocking. Yeah, Domi beat some big players. She beat Sharapova, she beat Redvanska, she beat Halep. She killed Halep weirdly and killed Redvanska. Yeah, I thought that her run was really remarkable. She's in the final of Acapulco this weekend. We'll see if she keeps it up. I mean, she still hasn't been a top ten player yet. That seems more likely than not to happen with any sort of decent results this year. But um, is she someone who can be looked at to get one step further? Maybe if a draw breaks really wide open, but I'm not sure that she totally, totally changed her status in the game the way that, like, a stand Vavrinka has over the last 12 months. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that she is a player who, as the season goes on, she will get weak. She will get weaker. So, like, you know, physically, what she needs to do in order to play at her best level is something that, that kind of can't be sustained over the course of a of a 10 month season. Uh-huh. So it doesn't surprise me. I mean, she's got she's had great results in Australia. You know, she made the final of Sydney last year, and then, you know, this year she makes the the final at the Aussie. I mean, it's the beginning of the season, you're fresh, you can actually like go and redline. And also she's kind of a mental player in a lot of ways and and I find that the kind of more mental players do better at the Aussie simply because there's just not enough baggage on the season to weigh them down. Yeah. <laughs> like they can be they can afford to be hopeful in Melbourne. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I don't think that necessarily changes the status, her status in the game. I, I think she's a dangerous player. She's always has been, but she will have bad losses and she will have good results and bad results. I don't know. I mean, ten, top 10 player. Yeah. That's just a, a matter of time this season, but you know, I, I don't know that she's going to be a player that I'm going to tag as like a favorite in any tournament that she plays. That's probably fair. Let's talk briefly about Radvanska who she beat in the semi. More for Radwanska did in her... Well, both of Radwanska's last two matches in, in Australia, I think, were noteworthy. Um, her bageling her nemesis, Victoria Azarenka, in the third... And sorry, in the third set of their quarterfinal. 
Um, it was a very strange match. And then flopping, I think it's fair to say, against Sibokova on less than 24 hours after she beat Azarenka, which I think was largely a tough turnaround for her emotionally, mentally, after such a high um, to rebound against Sibokova. They never really let her in the match. Did Aga, what, does, what kind of significance does Aga beating Azarenka have? Because at the time, it felt big. It did. It felt huge. It felt like that was going to be, okay, if you can play like that, then you could win this, yeah. Aga. You could finally get off the, the snide and, and, and win your first first major. I remember being excited. I was excited for a Lena Aga final. I was ready for <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, I was ready. I was, I was super. I was really looking forward to it. But you know, I mean, it, it comes down to what she said after she lost to Lasicki at, at Wimbledon, and what what she said when she lost to uh, Sibokova in Melbourne. That the key to her winning a Slam is not playing three set matches all the time. That physically, her body and her game can't survive two weeks of grinding out matches, and she needs to figure that out. And until she does. It's very possible that, you know, I think I, I, I posited this question either on SI or on my Twitter of, of maybe Aga's just not built to win. You know, she can't do the seven matches over two weeks because the way that she plays, she's going to get bogged down in three set matches in the first three rounds. Yeah, I guess it... She can't she can't get those quick six, one, six, two wins. Her She can't do it. And if she does, it's not with easy effort because she's just never going to win points on her serve she's constantly going to be defending her serve all the time she's constantly going to be in rallies and stuck in those and so but i mean in a lot of ways like when she lost to Sabolka, it really bummed me out because i was just like oh my gosh like i don't think she's going to ever win one and i really want her to win a slam yeah. i think it would be great it's hard to win a slam when in the first round you lose a set to putin seva <laughs> it's it's not easy I and mean, that's not the doctor recommended route correct for slam winning and then Last, but definitely not least, hype-wise, the fourth semifinalist in Melbourne was Jeannie Bouchard. Also, it should be said, had a what wound up being a very easy draw um, to get there. beating Sloan-like. Ivan- yeah, Sloan-like, beating Ivanovic. Except for instead of beating Serena, she beat Ivanovic, who had beaten Serena. Um, she got there, played well, I think pretty well in the semi against Lina. Second set was pretty close. Uh, she lost mm-hmm. 6-2, 6-4. Jeannie uh, lost this week in Acapulco, but what what do you think? Uh, can she be someone who's top 10 by the end of the year? Ooh, top 10 by the end of the year. Gosh. Numbers-wise, um, she's on track for it. Yeah, numbers-wise, I guess. I mean, well, we haven't really seen what she can do on clay, which no, is a significant haven't. portion of the season. Mm-hmm. So there's that. It's on grass, obviously, she had that, that breakthrough run, run at Wimbledon, but we don't know if that was a one-off or not. You know, hard courts, obviously, she's good. I mean, no. I'm gonna say no. I don't. Okay. I don't see Jeannie as a top tenner this season. I'd love to be proven wrong, but you know, as much as I think that I've, I've talked about Jeannie, like even from like back in the day, like when she was still a junior, that I, you know, there is no player that has done as great of a 180 in such a short amount of time with their game as Bouchard has. But at the same time, like I, she, I don't well. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough because it's hard for me to reconcile how different she is last year at this time to this year, like how she plays now. Yeah. And how she plays now is like she just like comes out of her shoes hitting big. But I still feel like her serve is a weakness. I feel like a lot of the external pressures um, that she's going to be going through this season. I mean, she cl- very clearly wants to be a thing. Yeah. Um, and but whether or not but she's also like doesn't seem to let things bother her during matches. I mean, she's a total gamer, gamer from what I can tell. Yeah, no, that's right. We, we spoke about that, um, that she's just kind of a jock. Yep. So I don't know. I mean, if I were to be asked right now, I'm going to say no, not top 10, but at the same time, like, you asked me in six months, and 
that might change. I just don't have enough data. Fair. I'll say the other thing I'll say about Ginny is that people who I talk to, like other, I talked to Carlos Rodriguez about her after the semifinal, and he was glowing about Ginny. He thought she was she was like a for sure like future champion, and was like really really good for the game. Just her mentality on there, like people people definitely rec- recognize like what she has and how ahead of schedule she is right now. It's a little disorienting to try mm-hmm. to uh, peg her down in terms of uh, how how good she can be how how soon. But yeah, it's a uh, Definitely one to watch to say big understatement there. I mean, and, and I know that the comparison is made for different reasons, but mm-hmm. there is a lot to, there is an argument to be made that she is kind of baby Sharapova. Yeah. Because Maria is a gamer too, and she is a jock at her heart, and she just wants to win. And, you know, all of the off-court success that's related to, you know, her looks and, and being a good salesperson and all these sorts of things, people wanting her to be the face of their company, like, that's obviously comes with stuff. But at her core, I mean, I think I've always said that, like, if I had to pick somebody on the WTA to play, like, for my life, like, one match, I'd always pick Sharapova. Unless, of course, she was playing Serena. Unless she was playing Serena, that's fair. But, like, you know, I mean, it's, she she lays it out there. She's not going to give up. She fights to the end. And that's all that I want. If I die after that, so be it. But, yeah, I mean, there is kind of a little bit of that with Jeannie. I don't get the sense that she has that kind of, like, too cool for school attitude when she plays. Like, she just wants to win, however that, whatever that means and, and whatever that takes. So, yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. It's tough. Yeah. Whereas I think it contrasts pretty strongly with like Sloan, yeah. um, who has clearly stagnated a bit. I think it's fair to say in terms of uh, her improvement over the last 12 months does not seem to be get, getting consistently better and does seem over it at times in matches in a way that Jeannie just never does. Jeannie's yeah. very much more tunnel vision within matches. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, I think that the whole Sloan thing really came at, came to a head um, during the Middle East swing. And it's uh, a one really cool thing about the Doha tournament is that they had Robbie Koenig and Jason Goodall doing commentary on the feed for Tennis TV, which was amazing. Because they don't usually do women's matches. Right, they're normally ATP people. And they absolutely lit up Sloan for her effort in her first round loss to Setkovska, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And not because of her game and not because of anything, but just attitude and effort and mentality and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I, I think that in a lot of ways, a lot of that stuff needed to be said, I think, on a, you know, on a broader scale. I think it's stuff that people have been talking about behind the scenes quite a bit. But it, it, it was. It was disappointing to see that effort. And, and you do see that kind of over it attitude more often than not with Sloan when she's down in a match. And she may turn it around because she's incredibly talented. Yeah. You know, she can hit her way out of situations. But even in the at the Aussie Open, I mean, her first, what was it, three matches? She she was, like, way behind in the first set. Yeah. So, you know, those are disappointing things to see from a player. But, I don't know, end of the season, who ranks higher, Jeannie or, or Sloan, Ben? I would, I mean, they're only one spot apart right now. Right. I mean, based on current ascendancy, I'd have to pick Jeannie. But, like we said, data set is too small, and Jeannie didn't know for sure. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. And Sloan... Her upside, I think Sloan's upside just as a pure um, ball striker is an athlete. bigger, an athlete, and just but yeah. but mentally right now, Genie has it uh, huge. I would love to see them play each other. Maybe India Wells they could play each other, be ranked sort of like in the uh, fifteen eighteen to get a third round love, match. It'd be so great. I love they pl- any I love any match that pits like Generation Next against each other. Right, because, and they also played twice in Asia last fall. We didn't get to see it either. One, right. they're out of court. So I think we are kind of owed. A genie slum match, if I can be so bold For sure. to say that. Yeah. I think you can be so bold, Ben. Thank you. 
So after Australia, big picture wise, came the Middle East section of the calendar where Simona Halep won her biggest to date title in Doha. And then old sirs Venus Williams and Roger Federer discovered the fountain of youth in Dubai, both winning their first titles there quite a while. Biggest titles in quite a while for both of them. So uh, what, what do you make of these recent outdoor Middle East results and what they can mean going into the rest of the season for Indy Wells and Miami, and I guess just Miami for Venus, obviously, who won't be right. in California. No, uh, I think that I'm most excited about Venus's result. Yeah, I would say the I same. I think that, yeah, that was the one that was the most exciting. It was a long time coming, and and I've definitely been pretty vocal, I think, about my belief that, that she'd be able to get back to playing top 20 tennis. Um, and that these sorts of titles were within her grasp. I mean, she was losing tight matches by, you know, a handful of points. She wasn't being completely outplayed. Yeah. No, no, I think she lost twice in the last uh, six months in third set tie breaks to Kvitova, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So she's yeah, been getting exactly. close, yeah. Yeah, she's just, she was just right there. Just, just And she kept saying, I just need match play, and she was right. And so it was a great run for her. So that's the most exciting. I mean, the one that everybody, the result that everybody will be obviously talking about going into Indian Wells is obviously Rogers' win today in Dubai, beating uh, Novak Djokovic yesterday, um, and then uh, uh, beating Thomas Burdick today. Um, so that's obviously an exciting result for tennis. I think that it's a, it's a good. Um, anytime Roger is back to being relevant and we're not having to like write about every single reason why he sucks at tennis, it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so long as he's the active slam leader, he will always be relevant. Yes. Sport, yes. No matter what well, his results are. But for this like it true. or not people, he will be. So. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know about you. Well, I don't know. But like for me, like whenever I'd have to like last year, write Like tournament previews, whenever Roger was there, it was like a weird thing because he was relevant as a person, as a, as Roger Federer in tennis. But was he relevant in draws? Did you really think he was going to get through? That was a different question. And it was a weird thing to kind of have to navigate because you had to talk about him. And then you'd have to be like, but he's not going to get through here. Yeah. Um, whereas now, like, it's it's a little bit more like, yeah, I mean, he could make a run here. He has a capacity to beat Djokovic. He, you know, Rafa is a completely different story, but but he can make finals. You know, that's definitely true. So that's good. Um, and then Halep, and, and, I guess. Yeah. The one we mentioned there. Halep. Is weirdly for someone who let's remember was like outside the top sixty going into Rome last year, she could be top five by Miami with like yeah. with like a mildly decent Indy Wells result, like a quarterfinal, and like an early loss by Sharp. Like you should say Sharapova doesn't make the quarters and Simona does. Simona's top five, top five, top, top five, five ahead of ahead of Sharapova. Like mm-hmm. who is this girl and <laughs> is she really is she going to be the next? I don't know. So some weird names to compare, like next Arancha or the next Irani. Oh, she's not going to be the next Irani. Yeah. I don't know if she'll be the next Arancha. I don't know if she's going to go win slams. But I think that she is... I mean, obviously, again, we need more of a data set because a lot of Halep's stats, you know, based off of last season, were based on doing really well at crap tournaments. Yeah. Let's be real. We don't have a lot so of she... data for her against, like, Sharapova, against right. um, Azarenka. We don't right. have that. We don't have that. And so, you know, I mean, she but she started the season well. I mean, quarterfinals of the Aussie, not bad at all. Still career best result for her there, you know, and then to win Dubai and to beat what was it? Three top 10 players, I think to do that. That's huge. So, you know, I mean, I think that she's obviously proven herself over and over and over again that she is a player to be reckoned with. But until she gets that signature win, it's very hard to kind of jump on her bandwagon because you just don't know. 
right? I mean, we have players who are ranked outside of the top 20 who, because they have at some point gotten like a signature win over, you know, the best players on the WTA, we pay attention to regardless of what their ranking is. Right. Someone and like Halle- a... Like a Makarova or something. Like a Makarova, like an even an Ivanovic or a Yankovic. Not that they're t- outside top twenty, but like, right. yeah, like. But Makarova is a very good example. Um, or Pavlyuchenko so, or something. Yeah, Pavs, another good one. Who, so, who won and, Paris, by the way? She way did. to go, Pavs. Brief sidebar: I saw Sharapova when I was in Sochi, and she was doing a little like press scrum before, before or after like the event, whatever it was. And one of the first questions she got was about, like, Pavlyuchenkova's potential in the game. And it's just like, why are you in Sochi with Maria Sharapova asking her about Pavlyuchenkova? <laughs> like, this is, this is, you have, like, one real shot at a question, and this is your pick? Really? Uh-oh. She did not look thrilled, but she answered it. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much Maria all the time. Yeah. She did not look thrilled, but she answered the question. <laughs> That's basically, it's a macro I have on my computer for writing Sharapova stories, but yeah. Anyway, sidebar over. Get back to Halep. Yeah, no, until she gets a, a big win, you know, she'll be kind of the Irani. Yeah. But I don't think that she's Irani. I think that she the has... The is so much bigger. So much bigger. But that's kind of the weird space that Irani sits in, right? Like, she can't really beat any of the top players, but she wins all the time, and she's pretty good on one surface and, like, whatever. But, yeah, so I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for that Halep-Vika matchup or that Halep-Sharapova or Halep-Serena or, you know, that that that's the match I want to see. Yeah, and especially on clay. I do think that Simona Halep can absolutely make the French Open final. I that's fair. I think so. I mean, yeah. that is her best surface. No one else. We're in a generation without great clay quarters, really. When the dominant clay quarter of your generation is Maria Sharapova, <laughs> you kind of need to take a step back and wonder what's going on. Um, That's fair. And Serena's obviously done well in clay recently, too. But we don't have any real pure clay quarters right now. So I think there's a void for Simona to fill, and we'll see if she yep. does. Speaking of Maria Sharapova, let's briefly talk about her and Andy Murray, who I think are on somewhat parallel tracks as they came as they ended 2013 and went into 2014 how would you assess how they've each come around this year and what the short-term future looks like for them with their various injury recoveries yeah i mean i think that i'm probably a little bit unfair to andy murray insofar as like i've been pretty surprised as to how slow it's taken him to bounce back okay he i mean i think that making the quarters at in Melbourne was good, although it was an incredibly shockingly soft draw for him. Just the worst draw ever. Let's be clear. Just the worst draw. I mean, he had Feliciano and Lopez in the third round, which was, who is a real professional player. But they're... Stefan Robert. Stefan Robert in the fourth round. Getting a lucky loser fourth round, that's a treat. Let's be clear. That is a treat. Yeah. So, I mean, I you know, and then he went, he played Davis Cup, which was fine. And then he lost in the quarters to Chilich, maybe? In Rotterdam. In Rotterdam. Uh-huh. And then he lost yesterday in the semis to Dimitrov. Two very quality players who are on the up and up, but two players that Andy Murray should not be losing to, even if he's at 90%, in my opinion. So those were a bit shocking, but I, you know, obviously, you know, you, you take time because there's not, it was never really clear what exactly the surgery was on his back and how bad it was. So I think in a lot of ways, you do have to kind of give him some time. Yeah, so we'll see an Indian Wells in Miami for him. As for Sharapova, I thought she was great for NBC. <laughs> no, I didn't get to see that either. I miss Johnny Ware. I miss Sharapova. I miss. She Carrillo. was fine. I mean, she didn't do much. You miss Carrillo. The Carrillo awesomeness was great. Is there the like, Carrillo, what is the, you can what is look the winter up the Carrillo of a badminton rant? I'm wondering. I know. Well, that was the thing. Is like we were saying that they should have put her in for Costas instead of Vieira. Oh, completely. That would have been amazing. 
Richard Deitch of SI was kind of like, yeah, that would be that would be a Instead good, good of Matt call. Lauer. Lauer was okay because really? I understand. That, yeah, I picked. I understand the pick for Lauer. He's perfectly fine and like whatever. But if you're gonna go like second string after Lauer or third string at that point, Vieira just doesn't know anything. Oh, harsh. So she doesn't. Harsh. Have you? Oh, you missed her during the um, opening ceremonies. It was brutal. But yeah, no. I mean, she. We don't know. We have no idea what's gonna happen in India Wells with her. You know, ideally the shoulder's good. She's gotten a good amount of time to rest, but she lost to Pavlyuchenkova in Paris in a tough, tough fought battle. But uh, but we'll see. I don't know. I, I really just I I came into this season kind of not really knowing what to expect of Sharapova, and about a month in, I'm oh, about no. the same way. That's about yeah. that's fair. I think that Maria is Maria's defending champ in India Wells. Some pressure, some points pressure on her there for sure, especially because she has finals in Miami also coming up, and. More points pressure on Caroline Wozniacki, who I'll give a brief Oof. mention to here, who I think if she loses early in New Wells could be as low as number 16, I want to say, somewhere in that range. I think I saw a rankings guru boiled egg tweet today. Yeah. So Carol, let's talk Caroline very briefly. It wasn't on our planned agenda, but since I sort of stumbled across her here, she got rid of Thomas Hogstedt in somewhat murky circumstances in terms of how exactly that ended. But Caroline, is there any reason to be hopeful for her? In this year. Well, my question is almost the opposite. Like, at what point is she no longer relevant? That's what I was going to say. In the ranking. Like, at what, at what drop? Obviously, she has kind of, like, a marketing standpoint within the WTA. I mean, like, she's a popular player, you know, and, and all that. But Here's a, I don't know, man. We got a question about her, actually. Going, We should try to answer some of these questions. We got in a bunch, and we'll get to them more yep. later shows. We just have a lot on our plate to clean mm-hmm. off. We did get one question from listener... Um, Fabian, he says, hi, Ben and Courtney. This came to us during Australian Open, this question. He says, the Australian Open has had Caroline Wozniacki on Rod Laver Arena twice in a row. What is her appeal? She seems quite popular with the public and dependably bankable, but I simply don't understand why. Her game is solid, but mediocre right now, and her ranking has been pretty lackluster of late. Is it the blonde hair? And this segues into another thing we'll talk about in a bit, this um, IPTL draft list hullabaloo happening recently and caroline is listed as an icon player along with serena and vika and ahead of Redvanska. here's the category it's serena azarenka uh, nadal murray djokovic agassi sampras wozniacki and Ravrinka, who just won a slam yeah i mean is it time to start looking at her just on paper and not because we i remember back in the early days of ncr Back in like season one, if you want to call it that, the 2012 season, we talked about her a lot. She was started that year number one, and she always yep. seemed like a very, very compelling character. I think she still is, but is it time for us to not talk about her? Do you find uh, Do you find her a compelling character? Yeah, absolutely. To me, she's a compelling character so long as she's in the top ten. I think that when she drops out, I mean, I guess she kind of would hold that space that like Ivanovich holds. Yeah, sure. Right, of kind of like a. A marketable player. The thing with Caroline in terms of explaining her popularity, I mean, you know, she's a recognizable name, not just because she was number one and all that sort of stuff, but also because she's engaged to Roy McElroy. And so to the casual sports fan, they know about her. Yeah, don't underestimate the McElroy factor. You can't. You can't. And I know that for myself as a person who runs a tennis blog, I think I've mentioned this before. That Caroline continues to poll very well, not poll like people like her, but people click on anything that has anything to do with her. So, you know, you can't kind of negate that. Now, from a tennis perspective, 
is she relevant? I mean, when was her last notable result? You know, I mean, it's it's been a really long time. Uh, I think maybe was, the win over Serena back in Miami yeah. was, it, was maybe And then, well, it? final last year was mildly notable, but she didn't, oh, it, for didn't sure. have a huge draw there. But yeah, that was probably the last one, I would say. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just really tough to really see where the upside is. And especially when, I mean, I really did think that like the pairing with Hogstead would be good. Yeah. I thought that would be a really good thing for her. I think he's kind of a no-nonsense, a straight shooter. I think he's good on technical improvements um, and tactics. So for her to part with him so quickly and, and to hire you know, Michael Mortensen, who wasn't even with her in the Middle East swing, Peter was there as her on-court coach, you know, and, and to not even really commit to Mortensen because the, the story there is that they're going to reevaluate after Miami, so after two tournaments. So that's that's worrisome. And on top of all that, you know, you do have to question and wonder because Caroline is is I don't think that she's like entirely delusional. Like I think okay. that I mean I, I think that there there's a part of me that does wonder, okay, she's engaged to Rory, they're gonna get married, she would have a per- fantastically good life yeah. as a golf wag. Um and does she need to put herself through this? I don't know. And I think that, you know, when she achieved her success um, on the tour of being number one, she didn't really have to, it kind of all happened like really, really fast. And when she was fairly young and she's never really had to go through, except for the last couple of years, obviously, you know, the real kind of harsh critique of her game. Like when she was number one, yeah, there were critiques, but they could just point to the, the rankings and be like scoreboard. Exactly. Right. But now it's like, does she really want to put up with this? And I don't really feel like she has the dr- same drive that like an Ivanovich or a Yankovic had, which is like some, you know, two players who were former top five players who dropped out and have struggled. And obviously JJ's on the former number ones. But yeah. Former number ones. Former number ones. But there was never a sense like when I was like talking to Ivanovich during the like whatever six year slump that she had that or five year slump that she was ever going to give up. And I think that the, I the hunger was always still there. Whereas with Caroline, I don't really get the same level of commitment. I don't know. I wouldn't get I wouldn't go as far as you did to say to say delusional. But I would say that Caroline definitely seems to be building in excuses, I guess, maybe for why she yeah, why she's that's not true. getting results and not putting it all on the line not totally totally committing to any real solution plan when they're out there um in terms of a coach in terms of whatever she's keeping her father around as a crutch even though i understand obviously he's been integral to her tennis the entire time and did help her get to number one but yeah, i just think she's leaving outs and i think the question of her desire possibly winning is an interesting one and we'll see how that plays out over the course of uh 2014 especially if she gets in some rankings trouble so we'll right. see. Yeah, it's it's just it's a, I don't know. It's just I don't know if it's just like a sense that I get from her, but there is kind of or maybe she's like coming to grips with it now. I don't know, but you know, it's uh it's all fun and games when you're winning. Yeah. You know, and 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 you know, not to use the cliche, but like, you know, it's it's about, you know, characters revealed when, you know, you're losing kind of sort of thing, and I just don't know if she's handled kind of her slump well. See? And I think she's still a compelling character. Look at us. I guess. I but... think she totally is. Totally. I don't know. I don't know. Totally. I'm kind of over it until she makes like kind of a back my talent kind of move, which was what I thought the Hogset hire was. And then when that fizzled, I was like, okay, well, you're just going to drop back to whatever you were doing and you're going to be comfortable. And, you know, the, the players that we look at as ones who've had, you know, quality resurgences are ones who didn't 
kind of mentally give up on it that, that and, and fall back on what always worked for them. But like we're constantly searching for something that worked. And that's where I feel like she's lacking and hasn't proven herself. Very fair. So let's segue from there to a couple players who are doing well so far in 2014. We mentioned Talip already, who was in this list of fast risers, but it's a couple guys who are also heavily hyped and the one who isn't, um, who have done very well. So let's start with both Grigor Dimitrov and Ernest Golbus, who both have broken the top 20 for the first time this year, which is surprising when you think about how seemingly relevant those two guys have both been for so long. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. Like, I mean... Probably the opposite of a Halep, where Halep could be top five before anyone notices that she exists, more or less. Meanwhile, Dimitrov and Golbis are, like, always talking points and always fan favorite for reasons that obviously aren't all directly related to their tennis playing abilities. And they're just breaking top 20. And I think I've been really impressed by Dimitrov, especially in 2014. Because I think I was pretty clear on this show, maybe elsewhere, Twitter, that end of 2013, especially, I guess, maybe a little bit before he won... Stockholm, although I don't think that was that much of a game changer, really. On paper, he was just not anything like his hype. His results were not there. He barely made the third round of a slam once, and that was by a really, really soft draw that included, I think, beating Lucas Puy in the second round of the French Open. Um, His results just weren't there at all, but what he did in Australia against Nadal was huge. That match was very, very impressive and could have easily gone five. And... um, yeah, and what he's what he's done so far, making the final of Acapulco, which played tomorrow or today, I guess, uh, has been also been huge. So he's legitimized himself as someone to be clearly looks top ten bound sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean the biggest thing that I've really liked about Dimitrov over the, over the course of this season, obviously, and then also like last season towards the end of last season as well, is that he's not taking those bad losses. Yeah. He's losing to players that you're like, okay, that's not that bad. Right. Like he lost to Golbis in Rotterdam. Tough matchup, you know, very tight match. Three results going into Acapulco this week was a second round loss to Chilich in Brisbane, a quarterfinal loss, obviously, to Rafa at the Australian Open and a second round loss to Golbis. And Golbis went on to win the tournament. So or not win the tournament. Make make the semis. Yeah, he made the semis. Okay. So he's not taking bad losses, which is huge. I mean, that's really how you're going to get your ranking up, right? Is that you're you're playing to your ranking at every tournament that you play. And then this week he had like a bunch of tough matches. He had like another three setter, a tough one with Golbis in the quarters. He beat Murray, came back uh, from a set down to beat Murray in the semis. So those are just, I don't know. I mean, he's kind of not, he's being really smart about his shot making. He's playing the right way physically. He's pl- he's He's was really impressive at the Australian for a guy who has a history of kind of not being able to get through best of five matches. He didn't have to play any best of five matches, which helped him in Melbourne, but he got through a lot of four set matches in the heat. That was great. So, yeah, I mean, I've been really, really impressed with him. He's kind of actually grown up. I don't see him as like a kid anymore. Um, And one of the cool stories that I heard listening to one of the commentary, I I feel like it was maybe like Jason Goodall during one of his matches is that when he first joined the Good to Great Academy last year, that for like something like the first like two weeks that he trained with them, he wasn't allowed to go down the line. So every shot he hit had to go cross court Uh to build the discipline in to not go for the big shot, but to like go for, you know, just like you can only hit cross court, just hit cross court to try and kind of, yeah, to build some discipline into his game, which we all know is is kind of the one of the big things that's been lacking along with the physicality. So, yeah, I mean, he's just been playing no-nonsense tennis 
and it's been really good to see. Yeah, definitely. Golbis also having very consistent results this year, uh, minus Australia, where I guess he lost to Sam Querrey in the second round, which didn't seem like a horrible loss, because Sam Querrey is obviously a very capable player. Uh, but Sam Querrey has not followed that tournament up with anything Nothing. at all. I mean, that Davis Cup performance by him against James Ward uh, was shocking. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Golbis... Uh, <laughs> Being top twenty, I don't think it feels. It doesn't feel like a change for him because I think he's had shown that level of tennis, like to be a fifteen, a, even let's say like an eleven through twenty kind of player for in flashes many, many times in his career. So it doesn't feel. It just feels sort of like the ranking finally matches the play more than anything. Yeah, and I think that I don't think that it's a shock to him either. I don't think yeah. that he was going out to celebrate that he made top twenty. That's not his goal. No. I mean, he he's a top fifteen talent with the potential to be and should be top ten in my opinion. And so for him to kind of put it together, win a title, very big for him, especially entering into this whole long stretch where he was kind of winning so many points last year. We went, what was it, like a 17-match win streak or something like that, 14-match? I don't remember. In double digits for sure, yeah. Yeah, so so it's good to see from him. Tough loss to, to Dimitrov this week in Acapulco, but yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, one of the themes of, I think, this podcast has really been about, you know, not the big four, and not the WTA's big three, effectively, Yeah, you know, kind of like stepping up and, and really showing that they're ready. This could be, I mean, obviously it's only a month in, and so yeah, we, can, we don't know, but this year. could be, exactly, this could really be a transitional year on both tours, and that's exciting. I mean, I think that that's something that I know for myself I've been begging for for a while. Especially ATP. I mean, they just needed yeah. new blood to be relevant, and that's huge. And one guy who's, the third guy I wanted to mention, who has had a big start to 2014, Winning two titles, making final in Rotterdam, was Marin Cilic, who obviously, famously, I think was out for five months on a drug suspension. No, maybe less than that, like three or four months last year for after getting successfully appealing his positive test ban. Um, I'm sure you all know the story, glucose tablets, whatever, we don't need to rehash all that. But he seems very much rested, recharged, and re relevanted because remember when he made the Aussie semis back in 2010 I believe it was he was a looked like a lock for top 10 for quite a while well and, when he was suspended he was um on the verge of breaking into the top 10 he was maybe 11 or 12 Yeah, he was 11 or 12 for quite a long time very yeah. very quietly but now he's getting his results a lot less quietly and he seems like somebody who I would not be at all surprised to see in London next year especially yeah. with um guys like Gasquet like Ferrer uh, stumbling a bit out of the blocks here. No, I totally, I totally agree with that. And it's 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 kind of an unfortunate thing with Chilich, right? Because, I don't know, personally, I'm not speaking for everybody, but personally, I don't think that he doped. I don't think no, that no, the no. whole glucose thing was a sham. I don't, you know, I think that the suspension think was does. totally yeah. valid. No, I, he's a good guy. And I don't think that, not that that's the relevant thing, but that's just, that just is really in conflict of kind of the guy he that we know him to be. So it's just always like tough to like have to actually, when you write about him, have to constantly like reference the whole doping suspension and feel like, oh, well, I have to explain it because I don't want people to think that this guy was like a doper, yeah. like, you know, who is coming back or anything. But it's good to see him do well again. I mean, I think that, you know, even when you mentioned, yeah, obviously the 2010 semifinals against Murray um, at the Aussie, it's easy to forget that he is a slam semifinalist. Yeah. Marin Cilic, and he and he is a weird matchup problem for a lot of different players. And so it's good to see him do well. He's under the tutelage of Goran Ivanisevic now, who's kind of, I think, simplified a lot of Cilic's game, which is not surprising because I don't think that Goran was particularly all about like Thinking. nuance and tactics. He's like literally like throw the ball up and hit it. 
like and he's serving incredibly well yeah. Chilich um, over the course of the last three weeks so it's good to see and and uh, you know quarterfinals of Indian Wells is not out of the question and, and top 10 by the end of the year definitely not out of the question no, absolutely not and minor shout to Burditch has also had a pretty decent start to 2014 but I don't think anything that outside of what his ranking would say he should do right so there you go those are the fast risers and that's about it for that we alluded to it briefly earlier before, Courtney, but there's been a lot of questions and just general confused buzz, buzz, but confused buzz about the IPTL, which stands for the International Professional Tennis League. Premier Tennis League. Premier Tennis League. Sorry. Yeah, see, I don't even know what it is. I'm, I'm still confused. <laughs> what, what do you what should people know about this right now, if anything? Um, it's the high profile world team tennis tournament slash exhibition that's going to take place during the tennis off season. So that's, that's what it is. Um, and I don't know what people need to know about it now. I mean, I, I go back and forth because on, on one hand, obviously if top players are going to commit to it, it feels a little bit more relevant, but I, I was going to actually send out a tweet about this because I was genu- genuinely interested to hear what fans thought about this because like, if top tennis players are playing this, what is effectively a month-long exhibition event during the off-season, yep. does anyone care? I don't think it, I don't know why it becomes more relevant than world team tennis or normal off-season exos. Right. Not sure. I don't. I, they're not playing for anything. I think you it's very I mean? cool like, if it's if you happen to live in one of these Asian states where it's being held. Good for you. But globally, for what it means to North American tennis observers, I'm not sure. Except for maybe people possibly getting injured or fatigued from it. It would be like it would be interesting to me if like the five cities that were set to have franchises, it should be noted that initially during the very aggressive rollout last spring, it was supposed to be six teams and now it's just five. But um, like I think two of them and possibly three, depending on which is the fifth team to be announced, are like cities that already have tennis. So Kuala Lumpur has the ATP tournament. Singapore has the WTA championships. The fifth city, which is supposed to be announced on Sunday, is supposed to be in the Middle East. So I assume it's not going to be Doha or or Dubai. Um, so maybe if it's another city, that's great. But yeah, so that's a bit weird. I just find it just an odd, odd thing for top players to sign up for. Now it should be again. I mean, this is one of the big kind of storylines with re- relation to the IPTL is how it's been so aggressively promoted and yet there is no detail that's really been provided, nothing concrete as to how this thing is going to come off. And so, you know, one report that I read is that like the top players, those ones who are like icon players that Ben had mentioned before, will have an opportunity to choose which ties they want to play. So in other words, if Rafa only wants to play one tie, he only has to play one tie. Which is like world team tennis. Which is like world team tennis. And again, from the from I would presume the player's perspective, it's no different than an exhibition. It's no di- flying to Mumbai, Rafa, to play uh, one night, and it's not even a full match. It's just a one set, best of five, uh, one five set, games. first of five, right? It's entirely, almost entirely ripping off the Wilson tennis format. Right. So, you know, that's yeah. no different than flying to Buenos Aires and doing a, an EXO with David Nalbandian. Yeah. Right. Sure. So assuming that the paycheck is the same. And also, it's not that different from other leagues that have existed in the offseason that we just didn't pay attention to. Like, there's right. been a yeah, the pretty set up check league in mm-hmm. the offseason that no one ever paid any attention to. 
which like some big players play. I know like Radvanska and Burdich. Yeah, they yeah. both played the Czech League. Kvitova. Like it was the Czech League was weird because like all the good players were all on the same team and all the other teams were on had like nobody. So I'm not yeah. sure what, for competitive balance what exactly it achieved, but yeah. Yeah, it's just it, there's just so many questions, and I think that the biggest thing that you know my kind of IPTL mind right now is just really yeah. I mean it's it's very very skeptical, and I remember I mean I saw a bunch of tweets like towards the end of this week where people were like kind of railing against the skepticism and you know give it a chance and da 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 and I just I, my response was just so like it's not my job to give it a chance like I'm supposed to be critical if you're going to tell me that Rafael Nadal might get paid a million dollars per night to participate in this league I'm going to wonder where that money is coming from and I'm going to wonder whether or not this league is sustainable and like worth something worth like paying attention to and i just don't really see other than this idea which i'm a little bit cynical about but this idea of like well it's there to grow tennis in asia yeah not really though like there are more than tournaments yeah right there's no there are no teams in china which is where everyone's trying to grow tennis and Uh it's where all the money is all the team the teams are in mumbai singapore kuala lumpur uh, I can't remember the fourth team that's been named, but it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's not, I just, I don't know. I just don't feel it. I just well, don't feel like this is a sustainable thing. And it's not sustainable if you don't have TV rights, if they can sell TV rights, then yes, that is a huge influx of cash that you could use to fund it. But until I then. don't know if anybody's going to pay money to watch, you know, Stan Wawrinka play a set of tennis that is not even a full set of tennis. Yeah. And probably a little XOE, what I'm guessing. We'll yeah. See. I mean, we'll see. It's it's the same problems that World of Tennis has run into, except with a much bigger marketing machine, much louder marketing machine so far. And we just haven't seen it yet. I think it's just too early to tell. We'll probably talk about it again come November or whenever it starts up. But until then, I sort of shrug. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. That's and in, 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 in the same way, like, what does it do to exos in other, you know, smaller countries? Like, you know, they've always had that, like, Bratislava exhibition yeah. um you know that that Djokovic I think went to and yeah he went there right after we were there exactly and then a few in like South America and you know I mean those are all also markets that deserve to see like top level players that that they may not get to I think they will though I think there's always gonna be enough money out there uh spread out on those smaller places to have exos that Exo exo landscape won't totally be leveled by this, I don't think. But it might just be a little bit. Maybe I don't know. I just I just don't think that it, I don't think the exo season needs to be streamlined. I think it's fine. It's a little bit of a free for all, you know. Yeah, it's true. I just can't wait to like you know in two years come January write a, write that piece of like screw the players if you're gonna come to Australia and be injured and tired and be like fatigued like I don't want to hear it. I don't. Yeah, fair. No, and I think it's probably not unfair to say that, like, Federer, his massive South America swing at the end of 2012, didn't do him a lot of favors in 2013. Yeah. So, and now he didn't do that at all in twenty in 2013, and he's having a great 2014 so far. Exactly. So, they need rest, people. Rest is good. And I will point out one name that made me literally laugh out loud when I saw it on the confirmed player list, Janko Tipsarovic. <laughs> Simply because I'm like, yeah, because, you know... <laughs> You don't, you like haven't played in like blah, blah, blah year. Like, and you're going to go and play in this XO and you're not an icon player. So if you're on there, you're probably on the team. I don't even know. I don't even want to deal with that. But we'll see. it did make me laugh. We'll see how it goes. Uh, we wish Yanko and everybody obviously all the best with that. And we, if it goes well, cool. I mean, we want tennis to do big things. But absolutely. Right now, 
it's too early to get excited about it. Not at the expense of the tour, not at the expense of the of the of the, of the point of tennis. And so, if you want to make it, if they want to make it into this whole like, yay, free for all, let's go play exhibitions. Well, then let's just rewind the calendar to, you know, the seventies. When, yeah, that was what tennis was. Like, players were making their bank playing exhibitions and, like, mailing it in in what were effectively tour events. I mean, read Jimmy Connors' autobiography if you want to know anything about it, all of this. Yeah. Skip the French Open to play World Team Tennis. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that if you are going to have the exhibitions, the exhibitions are fine. I mean, if that's free money for the players, all gravy and all good. But it can't come at the expense of the tour. And if it does then, yeah, I mean, you, you're just, I don't know, it, it's just, you know, when you have players who are kind of disrupting their preseason training, you know, for the Australian Open, which is supposed to be, you know, one of the four biggest tournaments of the year, um, because they would rather go and make a million bucks than win one of the, 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 the sport's biggest trophies, that's a problem. That's not ideal. No. So as we talked about at the beginning of the show, I just spent five weeks in Russia for the Sochi Olympics. And it was a long time to be in Russia. But it was also just an interesting thing to be in a big scale sporting event that had nothing to do with tennis for once. So <laughs> that was a nice sort of change of pace. But I was thinking a lot um, about how those other sports, you know, how tennis reflects on them. And one that I wanted to ask you about, Courtney, actually, is I know that you were watching a fair amount of women's hockey. I was. During the Olympics. So I wanted to know what, because we talk obviously a lot about the genderedness of tennis and the sports, the gender dynamics and stuff. So I was wondering what you made from just being a fan watching on the outside of women's hockey in the Olympics. And just as a sport, I guess, from what you could tell. Yeah. I mean, the first and foremost, I mean, if people were following my tweets during February, I just have to apologize in advance as to kind of how incessant they were and how Olympic space they were. But I mean, just from an initial comment I'll make is that like, it felt really good to be a fan again. Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, I was a fan of tennis, major, big, huge fan of tennis before I started writing for, for Sports Illustrated. And, you know, given what I do now, that's just not appropriate. And so over the course of the last couple of years, that's really kind of taken that away from me. And and I while, while I still enjoy it, I love the sport of it and everything and the personalities. I don't really have a rooting interest anymore. Yeah. You know, I think Ben and I have said it before that we root for stories. Yeah, we root for stories. <laughs> we don't really root for players. We sometimes root for matches to be quick. And yep, that's exactly. About it. Night and matches that, to and be quick. Some of it definitely takes a lot of the uh, the passion out of it, for sure. Like, you have to yeah, for sure. bottle that part up. And, yeah, it's not even like I could suddenly switch it on and go to Indian Wells right now as a fan and, like, cheer for people who I like. It would not work. It would need, it would need a long long recoil period yeah it would be so weird yeah you'd have to kind of come off it and kind of allow yourself and and to remind yourself that it's okay to feel in a lot of ways you know so that's the thing about like for me like with respect to other sports that's why i think i still feel i don't know like i need them because I, i get them out i get those emotions out there so yeah, I mean, women's hockey, I've always been like a big like women's hockey fan. And obviously, it's not a sport like, I mean, people know that I'm a big women's soccer fan, which is a little bit more accessible because the women's national team, the U.S. women's national team plays quite a bit. Um, but like with the hockey team, it's harder to kind of like see them on TV yeah. ever. So yeah, so from just like a pure sporting perspective and a fan perspective, what I loved so much about the women's hockey tournament was that it wasn't women's hockey 
no one, at least on my timeline and the people that I follow from commentators to fans, there wasn't even like when Canada, U.S. Canada played the gold medal mat, the gold medal game on that Wednesday. There was I didn't really see like a lot of people being like, hey, um, the U- USA versus Canada women's gold medal game. It was just like USA, Canada, gold medal. Let's go. You know, like yeah. and that was like a really cool thing to see. And um, and then the game itself was incredible and heartbreaking if you are on my side of the Canadian border. But yeah, it was great. And it just really made me think back to, you know, there will always be that dichotomy between women's sports and men's sports. Yeah. And women's sports will always be seen as a lesser, as kind of, uh, yeah, okay, you guys go play. And it's a Title IX thing. And, you know, it's cute and all and whatever. But when you have certain sporting events in women's sport that are elevated to a place where no one thinks about gender and they just think that they're watching this awesome thing. That's kind of the epitome of women's sport to me, unfortunately. Um, and I know that like, I don't know why that's unfortunate. Like, I, I mean, I think yeah, being gender blind in sports is an accomplishment in a lot of ways, I would think. No, it is and it isn't because at the same time, you there is a part of me that also wants to think, and this has always been kind of my selling point with respect to women's tennis, is it's a different sport. Right. Like you shouldn't see it on the same level. I mean, you shouldn't be comparing the two. And so I think that that's kind of I know you can't have like I can't have it both ways, but I kind of want like women's sport to kind of have its own space because I do think that it's a completely different experience enjoying women's sport because it's a much more communal. It's not as angry. It's not as pissed off. It's not as bro, um, basically. It's not as pissed um, off. I, I mean, except I mean, I was gonna, <laughs> when the U.S. plays Canada, US plays Canada <laughs> or, you know, when you need a Wickmeyer takes the court anywhere in the world. This is I mean, true. there. Yeah. Exactly. No, there are definitely people who do that. And I, I will say, I don't know if you have more to add, but just the U.S. Canada games were awesome. I don't know how much of the other. I know you watched some of the other games. Oh, I watched yeah, the other games. Too, some yeah. of them were just being there in person. Like the competitive balance is just you can it made me appreciate what women's tennis has been able to achieve because mm-hmm. U.S. and Canada were both like really, really clearly good teams. And good mm-hmm. in the women's context. I mean, let's be clear. In terms of, like, gender difference between, like, comparing how men and women play, hockey is one of the sports I think has the biggest disparity of any right now. I mean, just sure. the two products look nothing alike on the eyes, which is which yep. is um, obviously understandable, different physicalities and whatnot. But I think it also reflects, for right now, that there isn't the depth of talented female athletes, especially from the countries that are not U.S. and Canada, um, picking to play hockey it just clearly isn't the depth of talent pool there when you see some of like the bronze medal game between sweden and switzerland just the, the drop off in caliber of that from the gold medal game was ridiculous and some of the semi-finalists semi-finals when i think at one point the usa was out out shooting sweden 50 to 3 yeah. i mean that should not really happen at the olympics so i think it made me appreciate uh what women's tennis has grown into to sustain that level of competition and it's hard for the women's hockey players because there's no leagues really that you can make right. a full-time living at and one of the best players um nor yeah, nora ratu who's a goalie for finland ratu. ratu ratu sorry nora ratu she is saying that she's gonna have to retire because she can't sustain playing hockey. best best goalie best, in the world yeah and arguably she's best player bored. in the world yeah 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 I mean, I mean she's incredible and she's retiring because she just can't get any she's not challenged and that the bottom line is that you want to be challenged when you're playing sport it's not just out there to just like win or just like stand there especially as a goalie if you're just like standing there and like nothing's happening or whatever although for her with sweden there's always something no, for happening. sure that was and that was tough and there were i mean yeah the disparities in the game the way um 
some of the things that women have in that are different from the men's women games are just really interesting. It's interesting it's, how it works. It's like some of the things that surprise me on it is their shooting is really, really below the men's shooting. Like I will say, like not to be like from the point. From, no, not even from the point. Like even like from the circles, the only times they ever scored really, and then and that was, was, was either like scrums in front of the net or when they had like a really quick pass to the opposite side of the net, and the goalies, while really good when facing the puck, were not great lateral movers for the most part. So they ever that's how the, like the Canada goal happened in yeah. overtime, which is like a play yeah. where they got it got it behind the goalies and the goalies were a little bit slower. But yeah, the shooting was weirdly. So I say this is someone who was a goalie for like 11 years in hockey. I was watching it. I never think this in women's tennis. And I'm not trying to be like, oh, how girls suck. But like, I would have stopped almost all the shots in the tournament. Oh, and it for was just, sure. It was just I mean, different that, to watch. And I, it made me wish that like more top athletes, more girls picked up hockey sticks because they clearly are not right now. Right. No, I mean, that's always been the argument um, and always an issue with respect to like women's soccer. Right. And and that, you know, the U.S. has been so dominant for so long. And obviously, there's other countries slowly catching up, not slowly catching up. I mean, that's not true. I mean, Germany is great. Japan's great. But in team sports, to get a team of girls to play a sport so much harder than one. Oh, yeah. Right. Like you have Simona Halep in Romania. Right. But if you you try and like get like a Romanian team, women's team of whatever, even compiling all of their greatest athletes. Like it's so much more yeah. difficult. And what you see with women's sport um, with respect to team sport is because is that if that country, like you're going to have better teams more like most likely from like bigger countries yeah. as opposed to like smaller countries, because the smaller countries, all the best, the obviously the pool is smaller and all the best players will go speed skate or, or I don't know, ski jump right. or something where uh, they don't need that. Like, I mean, ski jumping was a new event. And it didn't seem to have any sort of, I don't know, competitive imbalance to it because individual sport. Right. And you don't need a threshold. Like Japan was made the Olympic debut, or sorry, qualified for the Olympics on their own merits for the first time after getting in for free in Nagano um, when they, right. they were hosts. And they, I'm not sure, they had stats on it, but I'm not sure there's like more than 200 girls playing, ho- women playing hockey in Japan right now. I'd be surprised if there were that right. many, honestly. And yeah. yeah, so it's just different. Whereas if you have three good ski jumpers from Japan, it's enough. And so it's just different right. things. So. Exactly. And that's why, I mean, it's, it's a thing to really kind of, I mean, it's why women's tennis is the biggest sport, female sport, women's sport in the world. It's why it's, it's the most successful yeah. in a lot golf of ways. Is arguably it's number two. Right. Golf is arguably number two. You have individual sports where one player can go and ship off to another country if their country doesn't have the facilities or the training and be good and then like start kind of a revolution. Whereas like with like team sport, it's so much more difficult. And, but you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that, that hopefully the U S Canada games as because they were so good, will keep like women's hockey in the Olympics, even though there is this incredible competitive imbalance after that, like the gap is like shocking. Yeah. It's kind of but, what happened with like, um, softball and baseball where they got knocked out of the Olympics because it right. wasn't more softball than baseball um, because the best there, thing, weren't, there weren't teams yeah, the who be- were good. Yeah. The best thing that's ever, that's really arguably ever happened to women's soccer is that like the U S doesn't win all the yeah. time. Like we, like the U S women win every Olympics because for whatever reason they bring it at the Olympics, but like world cup, we haven't won world cup since I think 99. Yep which is like incredible um, given how good the team is. And so that has kind of always, and the fact that it's soccer and it's the biggest sport in all the world and all that sort of stuff. But um, that, you know, knowing that 
a result is not in the bag before players take the field or the court or the ice is good for sport necessary and that's always sport, been my man. necessary for sport and that's always been my whole thing like i th- i did this q and a with um um, Andrew Burton, who's a big Federer fan for Sports Illustrated last week, um, just kind of getting into the mind of a fan and what it was like to be a Federer fan and things like that. And one of the questions I put to him, and it's a thing that I've always said on this podcast, is that like, I don't really understand the love of dominance. Like to me, sport is better when there's no dominance, but I like parody. And so kind of trying to get into get to the bottom of that. And you know, that is the biggest thing. And what makes this season in tennis kind of really, really interesting is that it do, you do feel like there is potential for a remarkable amount of parity on both the men's and women's side, especially given like Sharapova's questions, Azarenka's photographed in a foot boot, like, you know, two weeks ago, is she even going to be able to compete in yeah. Indian Wells is a question, um, you know, Serena's age and all these sorts of things. And then on the men's side. So it, that's where at least for me as a fan and also for as a writer, it's like much more compelling than when I have to write about how awesome Rafa is for the eighth time in the year. It's hard writing a match preview of like Djokovic and all for the 13th time that year. It's just hard. Right. It's not, it's, it's not hard. inspiring. Let's put it that way. Or it, it feels stagnant. So here's to having it all blow up in 2014, which it seems to be doing so far. Keep it up. You Halips and Dimitrovs of the world. I, I totally agree. Golbis, you do your thing. You break some rackets, you win some matches, I'm down. I don't think you're to worry about Golbis breaking racket. I'm pretty sure that's, <laughs> that's a guarantee, true. no matter what happens. That's actually a guarantee. That's actually a before they step on the court, you know that will yeah. happen. But yeah, it's still fun. It is. So that, sh- that should do it for us this episode. Glad to be back in your ears once again after some time off. Hopefully in your hearts as well. Aww. If you want us to be there, with consent, obviously. obviously. Th- thank you for listening. We'll have a bunch more shows now that we're on the same continent for a while. And the same coast soon. Same coast soon. And different coast soon, because I think we'll both be in Indy Wells, and I think we'll both be in Charleston. Spoiler yes. alert. So that'll be fun. And so we'll have a bunch more shows from there. Hopefully, try to get some guests for you and stuff in the next few episodes, which is always a fun thing to do in these tournaments, which are pretty well suited to them. And yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, as always, you can like us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. You can follow us on Twitter, too. ncr underscore tennis is our name there. And you can also subscribe to us on iTunes or podcast app or Stitcher Radio, whatever else. Find our RSS and go wild with it. Yes, we will make it up. We will make it up to you guys. We know that we've been silent for a month. So we'll we'll bring you the content and hopefully the snark and the insight as well once we actually get to see these players again. Um and we'll, and we'll just crank and... it up to 11. Yeah. Exactly. I think I think it's fair to go on like I think Olympic hiatus is is not the worst thing. I feel like people weren't really caring about tennis that much in February. It, would it been, was hard for me to. It would have been rude to be like sorry uh Lindsay Jacobellis. Let's go talk about Simona Howell. I don't know. What am I talking about? I don't know. Leave You're still punchy. I'm a little punchy. I'm not super sleep-filled. Is that a word? Yeah? It is now. Let's go with that. See you later, guys. Lates. <laughs>